It was the summer of 2010, and I had recently heard about an organization dedicated to the empowerment of black girls. The work was relevant to my personal and academic interests, and I wanted to learn more. So I decided to Google it, as one does. Not remembering the exact name of the organization, but recalling the phrase, black girls in it, I used those two words as my search terms. Y'all, these search results, I just can't. In the top seven of more than 276 million results, only one was not related to porn. I was dumbfounded. I was hurt. I was angry. When searching the world's most influential search engine for information on black girls, girls like me, like my sisters and cousins and nieces, and now my child, how did it happen that we were most associated with pornographic sex? After my initial reactions subsided, my knowledge of history took over. That association of black girls and women with lewd and even pathological sexuality is so old. There's pseudoscience around it from at least the 19th century, if not earlier. We know that enslavers used it to justify the sexual exploitation of enslaved women, and that views of black women as hypersexual made their way into novels and films and so on. Now, how does this history connect to Google? You're about to find out. Just so you know, turns out the organization I was searching for is called Black Girls Rock. Now imagine if that was the message that rose to the top. I'm Monita Bell, your host for The Mind Online. And this podcast comes to you from Teaching Tolerance, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. In each episode, we'll explore an aspect of the digital literacy world, what educators and students alike need to know, and how educators can guide students to be safe, informed digital citizens. In this episode, I speak with Sophia Noble, an assistant professor at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communication. It just so happens that she and I performed identical Google searches around the same time, give or take a year or so. That search led her on a path of research that includes her 2018 book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. We talk a great deal about that research. Beyond intersections of racism and sexism in search results when it concerns women and girls of color, as was the case with mine and Sophia's searches, there's also the element of search engines allowing content from white supremacist organizations to rise to the top of searches about black Americans and other marginalized groups. That high ranking indicates legitimacy and credibility and can influence people, as in the case of Dylan Roof, who murdered nine black people in Charleston, South Carolina in June 2015. To dig into this issue, I speak with Heidi Byrick, director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, which tracks and reports on hate groups and other extremists throughout the United States. When we ask each other, did you Google it? We need a better sense of what might come with that. First, my chat with Sophia Noble about how search engines reinforce racism and how educators can approach this issue. Let's get into it. Sophia, thank you so much for talking with me today on um, a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, but before we get into it, will you introduce yourself and tell us a little about what you do? Sure. My name is Sophia Noble, 
and I'm a professor at the University of Southern California in the Annenberg School of Communication. And I am the author of a new book called Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Thank you. And this is near and dear to my heart because I I didn't tell you this before, but you and I actually performed identical Google searches around the same time. Uh, For me, yes, black girls. And uh, for me, it was around the summer of 2010. And so I experienced what you experienced, (laughs) you know, just like, what is this? (laughs) Is this for real? It might also be a question that we ask. Yes, I absolutely did. How could it happen? Like, how is this even a thing? And at the time, it was 2010 for me. So as you note in your book, Google has become synonymous with Internet search pretty much. And and it's a commonly held belief that it's a neutral, objective repository of information. And and also that algorithms themselves are neutral. Uh, Yet Google is first and foremost a commercial platform. And you you speak at length about this in the book. But um, can you explain why that commercial element matters and how we approach Google as a source of knowledge gathering? Sure. So one of the things that I think is really important to understand about the commercial nature of the internet, and I say this as someone who has been on the internet since, oh, I, now I'm going to date myself, but <laughs> easily since 1989. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, back in the dial-up days. And um, as we've watched platforms come into existence of a commercial nature, I mean, you know, many of the large platforms we engage with are completely dependent upon advertising as kind of their financial model. Um, They financialize data of all various types, including um, search engines, which are, you know, commonly thought of as maybe a portal into all the world's knowledge, as uh, the the place we go when we don't have answers that we can ask uh, uh, questions of. But truly, Google Search is an advertising platform, and it optimizes content uh, based on its clients that pay it. Uh, pay the company to help um, create more visibility for their content. Um, It's also optimized by people who have an incredible amount of technical skill. These might be search engine optimization companies. And, uh, you know, in my former life, before I was an academic, I was in advertising and marketing for 15 years. And as I was leaving that industry, I mean, we were spending all of our time trying to figure out how to optimize getting our clients to that first page of search results through our media buying and and public relations, right, activities. So it's, it's a system that while on one hand is incredibly reliable for certain kinds of queries like uh, where can I find the closest coffee shop to me, uh, you know, it is terrible for asking questions uh, of a more complex nature um, like, you know, keywords or questions around identity, um, trying to make sense of complex social phenomena, or just quite frankly, not correcting the kinds of misinformed questions that we might ask of it. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, this goes to the algorithm, right? Um, A lot of people think that, oh, well, search results are 
just ranked according to popularity or, you know, whatever words or terms are linked the most or clicked the most or, you know, for a given set of keywords. Um, can you explain, as you do in the book, like why that's not the case? What's actually the case when it comes to what's getting prioritized? Sure. Well, I can tell you that those of us who study Google and, uh, you know, companies that are highly reliant upon algorithms and artificial intelligence are often trying to um, deduce from all the available factors that are visible to us. So no one except the people who are under NDA at Google actually know the specifics of how Mm -hmm. its search algorithm works. So let me just give that a bit of a disclaimer. Um, However, we definitely know that there are multiple factors that go into um, optimized content in its platform. So certainly popularity is is kind of the first uh, line of kind of organization. In the early days of Google, there was a kind of the process of hyperlinking among websites as a way to, uh, you know, evaluate legitimacy. So for example, if you had a website and I linked to it and a thousand other people, let's say, you know, 10,000 of us linked to um, SPLC's website, we would, we would give it legitimacy. So that is a, a form of kind of pointing or popularity um, or legitimacy, uh, you know, making in a search engine. Right. But there's also other factors like Google's own um, AdWords product, which allows people kind of 24 by 7 to enter into a live auction where they can offer to pay X amount of money for optimization of the keywords that they associate with their content. And this is a kind of um, a more difficult place for all of the commercial search engine companies because as we know, if we look, for example, to the you know 2016 U.S. presidential election, um, many different actors from around the world with all kinds of nefarious um, intent or malintent might engage in optimizing disinformation, mm-hmm. for example. Um, so that's a much harder, more difficult part of the kind of monetar- monetization of content to regulate or manage. Um, there are certainly algorithms that are deployed and they're often updated. Google itself says it has over 200 factors that go into its algorithm that does kind of this automated decision making about what we find on the first page. And of course, in the book, I really focus on what comes up on the first page of results because the majority of people who use search engines don't go past the first page. Right. It really stands as kind of the the truth, so to speak, in terms of how people um, think of, of, of what shows up there. Um, and then there's kind of a third invisible force that's, that's playing a role. And these are what um, my colleague at UCLA, Sarah Roberts, um, has written a new book about called Behind the Screen, which is the armies of commercial content moderators. And these are people who have to kind of manually um, filter out or curate out content that might be illegal, for example, child um, sexual exploitation material, um, anti-Semitic uh, content that might show up in Germany or France, or any content that would be illegal in the place where a search engine is doing business. So there, these are kind of the trifecta, I think, of, of important factors that influence what the algorithmic output is. Gotcha, gotcha. And so... Why do you think it's important for, well, really all of us, but certainly um, young people who are learning the ins and outs of 
doing online searches? Why, why do they need to know those different elements of what factors into the algorithm? Well, you know, it's it, the the process of becoming educated is is complex for sure, and I think that you know we're all educated by a variety of different factors: the media, you know, our families, teachers, professors, if we're fortunate, um, and and internet search engines for sure are playing a role because I think young people are increasingly asking search engines complex questions Mm -hmm. that might be better suited or pointed towards say a reference librarian or um, a trusted uh, kind of learned adult who might know or maybe organizations that have been working in an area for a long time um, who have uh, you know bodies of evidence and research that could help inform a point of view. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the past, we've always relied upon teachers and schools and textbooks and librarians and all kinds of, you know, literature, art to help us develop our education and become knowledgeable. And I think we cannot substitute those multiple inputs with a search engine. And this is kind of the main thing that I certainly stress to my own students, which is, you know, a Google search or any kind of commercial search engine might be a starting place, but it certainly should not be the end. And questions about, you know, complex social phenomena are rarely answered well by search engines. And so this is a place where I think, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, figuring out what's appropriate for the right place and the right knowledge sector is really important. I don't think of search engines myself as being a place that are like chock full of leading us to knowledge, but you might get some helpful information. And there certainly is a difference between, you know, information, kind of knowledge, and then wisdom. And uh, that wisdom might take a, a much more contemplative set of, you know, practices. The other thing that, you know, I think people need to think about, young people in particular, is that expecting to ask complex questions and getting an answer in 0.03 seconds is really antithetical to everything we know about being uh, deeply educated, well-educated, and having a depth of knowledge. There are some things you cannot know in 0.03 seconds. Um, We should not kind of socialize ourselves to thinking that there are instant answers to complex questions. Mm Mm-hmm. That actually reminds me, um, I, I had a conversation earlier with Heidi Byrick, who uh, is over our intelligence project here yes. at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And we were talking about, in particular, the, uh, the, the automated, the autofill that pops up when you begin yes. a Google search. Right. And, you know, this very idea that even if you go in looking for something in particular, just by typing one word, you're kind of getting these suggestions other things that may lead down these terrible rabbit holes. It's true. Right. That, yeah. And I, I think it gets to the point you're making here and, and definitely in the book that when we look to search engines to replace libraries and replace what experts can tell us in these more informed ways, then that's when we kind of get into trouble. It's really true. I mean, auto-suggestion is uh, something that I've, you know, also been very interested in. And one of the ways that I've looked at this, for example, is 
when I did uh, queries on Mike Brown after he was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, and seeing that, you know, the kind of the auto suggestions for Mike Brown were kind of like led to his autopsy um, video of his death. Similarly, when I did searches, I wrote a paper about um, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman and looking at the searches there where Trayvon Martin, the auto suggestions for him were like, was a thug, is a bad person, right? I mean, just really negative framings of Trayvon Martin while George Zimmerman was framed up, you know, kind of autocomplete with is a hero, Um, You know, so Hmm. these narratives are really um, potent in shaping and framing how someone who might have zero knowledge, for example, of George Zimmerman's murder of um, Trayvon Martin, which he was acquitted for, we know, um, but certainly frame up how one might be oriented to thinking about both of these people. And I think this is demonstrates, again, the complexity and the loss of what it means to for communities and families to narrate, you know, the tragedies that befall them or um, other kinds of experiences. And, you know, when I think about other moments in history, like, for example, Ida B. Wells using photographs of lynchings of African Americans mm. um, to go around the, the country. I mean, those photographs on their own were in some people's homes as like memorabilia of the, of a, that, that they celebrated participating in these right. heinous, horrific acts, right? But she was able to take right. those photographs and use them in service of ending um, lynching, right? Or organizing people in service of ending lynching, legalized lynching. So what we can't do in something like Google is organize the narrative to frame what these kind of suggestions might be, right? When you go and you look for Mike Brown and the first thing you see, or Eric Garner, is a video of them being kind of murdered or killed at the hands of um, law enforcement, there is no way to narrate or frame what's happening there. It's just kind of left there. And I think that what we're seeing is that um, these images are, you know, fomenting, you know, PTSD and trauma for people who view them. And Mm -hmm. certainly the families have lost control of um, the ability to take those things down. Mm hmm. And yeah, this, uh, the concept of control that you're talking about, you know, the ability for um, a group of people or a community to control the narrative about themselves is an important part of your book. I know. And, it, and it's related to this concept that you mentioned called technological redlining. Can you just explain what that is? Sure. So, you know, I've been concerned with thinking about, uh, you know, other phenomena, kind of illegal practices like redlining, which, you know, we know has been about um, kind of um, fostering discrimination in our society, mostly kind of racial discrimination. And when I talk about technological redlining, I really mean that um, how is it that digital data is used to foster discrimination? And that could be maybe using our digital identities and our activities to bolster inequality and oppression. Um, sometimes it's enacted without our knowledge, just through our digital engagements, which become part of kind of an algorithmic, automated, or artificially intelligent sorting mechanism. And these mechanisms can either target us or exclude us. One of the ways that you see this, for example, are how uh, people's 
past traces of places that they've been or identity demographic information that they have kind of populated into all kinds of websites that they've visited might be used without their knowledge to profile them into um, certain kinds of categories. Let's say they are profiled into, you know, being given higher premium insurance quotes, right? Or maybe they are not advertised to with certain kinds of premium products. And there's a long history of digital platforms really trying to profile the people who are visiting those sites and um, then marketing or selling their information or their identities to companies that then target them. And what we often mm-hmm. see, I think, replicated online, um, and I think here of the work of Tressie McMillan Cotton, who wrote a great book called Lower Ed, about the way that black women, for example, are targeted for these kind of predatory for-profit colleges when they're trying to go online, mm-hmm. right, and better themselves with some type of educational opportunity. They're targeted to, you know, with these like DeVry or t- Trump University kind of fraudulent Um, educational opportunities where, you know, this is kind of what I mean about kind of the digital redlining that happens. And part of that happens because um, these systems are collecting information about our race, you know, our credit, our um, gender, the zip codes that we live in, and so forth. And this is something that I think, you know, to me is really important when we talk about the distribution of goods and services in our society, like education or housing or other kind of civil rights the, the technological means to do this type of redlining is something that we really have not paid close enough attention to and something that I think we certainly need um, greater public policy around. Mm-hmm. And so getting back to this idea of uh, women and girls in particular, uh, especially women and girls of color being uh, targeted in unique ways, why, why do you think it's important for young people who are learning about the internet and how to use internet search and you know how knowledge comes to bear on that platform why is it important for them to know the way that women and girls fare it's in search yeah results? i mean it's such an important question which is you know why do we need to understand that the platforms that we're engaging with are not neutral I mean, this is this mm-hmm. is something that's important because I think, you know, if I think about when I was a young woman and uh, the, the dominant form of media was television, radio, uh, you know, magazines, let's say for me when I was young, I knew that these were kind of like unidirectional. I knew that programs were made in Hollywood and that's how they showed up on TV. I knew, you know what I'm saying? I understood kind of a little bit, even as a young person about the logics of that some producers somewhere or directors were deciding what I was going to come up against or or consume. Some of it was for me. Some of it was against me, right? In my identity. But I kind of, I I had a, a better sense of that. Young people right now, I think, go on the internet and in many ways, especially when they go through something like Google, they think this is going to bring them a truth or impartial Mm. kinds of information. And so what does it mean? And I think this is why you and I both might have been a bit jarred when we did our searches on black girls years ago and found that pornography and hypersexualized material dominated the first page of results. Well, you know, that's really different than 
you know, seeing sexually explicit or kind of eroticized advertising in a magazine that might be targeted toward me. And I can kind of, uh, of course, be harmed by consuming those images. But I don't think the magazine is like a, a teller of truth. And the way that people relate right. right to Google or search engines as being these fair, neutral, objective, credible spaces. And that's the huge difference in the media landscape right now. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, people like me, I think, are trying to impress upon the public to handle these technologies with caution, but also, you know, try to raise awareness with these companies that they have a if they're going to claim to be kind of democratic and neutral and objective, then they have a responsibility to fairly represent people in that way. Or they should come clean and just declare themselves advertising platforms that are catering to their clients uh, or to people who ha- you know want maybe some of the most base or derogatory content you can get. Right. Uh, to, to be honest about what the aim is. So going back to what you were saying about the magazine, you kind of going in, you, you know, the, the, the context and the aim of what that ad in a magazine is doing versus something appearing in a Google search or results in another search engine and being presented as truth. Yes, because in a magazine right. or in newspaper or in television, radio, there's the content and then there's the ad and there's a, you know, a more clear line of demarcation when we talk about a search engine, a commercial search engine, or even social media, quite frankly, those lines of demarcation are not entirely clear. And the the public often doesn't understand that optimized content may or may not be advertising uh, related. They may not even understand the, you know, the logics. I mean, one of the things I say in the book, for example, is that you know, we could present in a library, we have stacks and stacks and stacks of books, right? And, and no one part of the library often is seen as kind of more valuable, or better than some other stack, right, or row of books, because it's just kind of like all there, and you can browse those shelves, uh, you know, a bit equally, uh, under the best circumstances. So when we talk about presenting information in a rank order fashion, where we're going from one to a million or more hits. The cultural logics in the US and in the West are that if it's number one, what? It's the best. I mean, we have a fo- we right. wear a big number one foamy finger at the football game for a reason. We don't <laughs> wear like right. 1 million, you know, 300,000, you know, on our foamy finger. So the cultural logics of rank order, for example, confer a particular type of legitimacy. And these are the kinds of things that I really try to tease out in the book about like, what are the things we're not really noticing about these kinds of um, information environments that have, again, a certain type of legitimacy that we might call into question a bit. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, host of the Teaching Hard History podcast. Did you know that you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development just by listening to this episode of The Mind Online? It's a special opportunity for educators from Learning for Justice. Go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD. PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. You can also find the link in the show notes. Once you're there, enter the unique code word for this episode, optimize, all lowercase. 
Now back to Manita Bell's conversation with Sophia Noble. So then if, if we are approaching digital literacy instruction, at least from the, the standpoint of using search engines in a way that, okay, now you know that biases are inherent in algorithms and that search results don't necessarily represent the most relevant or the most credible information you can find. How do you think that awareness um, also speaks to the need for young people to think of themselves as digital producers and creators? Well, I think it's it's really great that we're finally kind of in a moment where we're starting to think about the um, biases that get built into all of the digital technologies that we're engaging with. I think that's really important. And it, it, it you know, when I started writing the book, it was incredibly controversial to a number of people um, who I talked to because they just didn't want to believe that that could be possible. So we're we're certainly, I mean. Um, journalists like yourself are doing a really important uh, service to the public in calling into question whether these platforms can be fair and neutral. Um, having said that, I think that, you know, the internet has also been an amazing place for creative expression, for sharing ideas, for finding other people, for both, you know, exacerbating social isolation, but also creating connections with people. It's a complex psychological space, I'll say at a minimum. Um, you know, right. young people, I think, you know, one of the things that I worry about is that just because we think it and we put it on the internet doesn't mean that it's true. And, um, you know, there is a really important skill set that we all need called critical thinking. And it's tied to our depths of education and knowledge. And I think that um, one thing we should not give up is that just because somebody writes it and puts it on the internet, that it's true, that we should believe it, that we should internalize it, that we should let it hurt us, that evidence and other ways of knowing things that we experience in life as young people is really important. And we should never give up on uh, kind of wisdom and, and, a, and a deep education. And I think some of that comes from long form reading in books. Um, obviously, I come out of the field of library science. So I'm a big fan of libraries and books, because I think they help us think in very complex ways about the complex worlds we live in. And you know, the internet um, sometimes truncates and shortens um, our patience for complex thinking. So I guess I would say as people are creating, um, don't give up on, you know, the many forms of media that are available uh, for us, including books and art and uh, classes and conversations. You know, that also reminds me of the section in your book when you talk about kind of alternative search engines that have sprung up to reveal more representative narratives about a particular community. Would you say that there are search engines out there that maybe people don't know about that perhaps do a better job than Google when it comes to um, identity-based searches and, you know, things related to that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, there was a, the, the great experiment um, of Blackbird, which was a browser that was really intended to help African-Americans and Black people find more relevant content. And one of the things we know from research, for example, is that 
for um, people of color in the U.S. who, particularly African Americans and Latinos who are not online, many of them report out it's because the content they find is not relevant to them. And so I think that, you know, we certainly, I certainly argue for more search engines and more pathways to knowledge, not just information, um, rather than fewer, rather than having one. I mean, Google has become, you know, synonymous with internet search in such a way that people don't even think of any other pathway. And I think there should be many pathways. And one of the things that I often talk to librarians about is um, how amazing would it be to have librarians and professors and teachers, people who are subject matter experts, um, curating content and in these various knowledge um, spheres that are more open to the public. Um, You know, when we think about academic librarians, um, you know, where we can go and get some of the best research, you know, available in the world. Um, that's only if you're in a university. So that's not particularly helpful Mm. to the public, um, the majority of whom are not in a university. So what happens, right, right, for the rest of us if we're not in those spaces? And I think that um, there are a lot of information professionals and librarians and and those that I mentioned who could help us navigate the web better and make clear the values. Like we are intending to uh, send you to the Southern Poverty Law Center when you need to understand how hate works in America and which organizations are uh, organizations you should know about and become literate and, and educate yourself, right? Rather than leaving it to Stormfront to potentially pop up when you want to know about hate groups and let them have the microphone of educating young people. So these are the kinds of things, I mean, certainly someone like me, I would know the difference between Stormfront and the SPLC. And I think that's uh, that kind of knowledge. Um, We have hundreds of thousands of people in this country who are great experts who could lead us to knowledge and they're called librarians and teachers and professors and journalists, (laughs) right? Educators. And I think that we should um, center them more in the conversations about access to a good education and good knowledge rather than leaving it to advertising companies. And that's really the point that I try to make. We should diversify the information ecosystem with more search engines and more ways, more pathways to knowledge rather than fewer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, just a moment ago, you you kind of made a distinction between information and knowledge. And I just wanted to have you talk about that a little bit. How do you distinguish the two? Well, you know, I think of information as being, um, you know, it can have kind of a a function and be, uh, you know, not necessarily connected to fact. It may not, may or may not be connected to understanding or sense making. There's a lot of information that floats around us all the time. It may or may not kind of deepen our understanding of the social practices that are at play in, you know, building a healthy society or democracy, right, or, or mm-hmm. um, making, mm-hmm. you know, better humans, um, so to speak, or, you know, a more peaceful coexistence. I mean, there's lots of ways you can think of knowledge, or, or just even deepening your skill set, and your abilities to do things in your life. So, you know, knowledge really helps us to kind of point our intentions in ways that are well-informed, we should say, that take Mm -hmm. in multiple factors 
And, you know, some of those might be kind of science, history, right? Uh, kind of, you know, processes of learning from the past. Um, so knowledge, I think, is important. And of course, you know, I, maybe I put my own premium on wisdom, which I think is really being able to learn um, vicariously from other experiences that we don't have to go through ourselves, um, you know, mm-hmm. taking the mm-hmm. best of what knowledge has produced and applying it in a way that really improves our own individual and collective experiences, being alive, uh, right? Or living in a society, living in a community, a neighborhood. So information may not necessarily make you wise. It certainly mm-hmm. is, you know, it's here and, and there's many kinds of information. Um, there might be information that's factual. There might be misinformation where people are, deli- you right. know, kind of um, misleading us uh, away from the facts. And there might be disinformation which or propaganda, which is purely intended to um, ill-inform us. And right. so that that is harder and harder for people to discern. And the internet, I think, is a place where um, it's also d- difficult to discern. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I really want to highlight this because um, as I began consuming your book, which has had me wrapped, um, you, you make this point about the fact that algorithms are created by human beings, right? Yes. Which is why in and of themselves, they can't be neutral because human beings are not neutral or objective. Um, but specifically, you talk about the fact that, you know, generally speaking, for the most part, the folks who are creating these algorithms in Silicon Valley and in these tech spaces are white, male, um, you know, from very similar backgrounds that don't reflect the diversity of who we are right. as a society. Yes. Um, right. And so not only do we have you know, the the biases that they come in with as human beings, but we also have uh, the biases from our history and from old media that you talk a great deal about. Yes. Pouring into these algorithms and thus the search results we get. So all of that (laughs) to say, are there ways that we can reduce or push down the biases showing up in our results, assuming that we can actually recognize them? You know, it's a great question about reducing bias, and that's really a, a hot topic right now. You know, I guess I feel like there's there's actually no such thing as the unbiased place, um, you know, with, with certainly with like social history. Maybe there's, there's, you know, even science, the things that we have thought of as fact, sometimes we do more experiments and we come to have new interpretations, right, of what we previously thought. So, um, and this is again, because we we generate more knowledge about a, a particular phenomena. And so I think this is, this is one of the ways in which calls for, you know, unbiased technology are probably woefully insufficient. I think, you know, for sure, we know that algorithms, um, and certainly AI, um, you know, and predictive technologies, use data sets that are made by human beings. And as I'll tell you, as a researcher, I know a lot about how to make a data set. And I know a lot about how um, data sets get made and kind of um, 
constructed, they're made up on some level, right? Categories are made that are at the that rely upon the decision making and thinking of the researchers who make those data sets. So those data sets are um, already flawed, and they already kind of drop out a lot of nuance. They're about generalizations, not about specifics. And then those data sets get used as a baseline of training for predictive technologies or artificial intelligence or automated decision-making systems. And this is where we have, of course, new attention on things like predictive policing or criminal sentencing software, where previous patterns of, uh, you know, what the data sets that are training those um, AI to do don't account for is, for example, a history of over-policing in poor communities. They don't account for a history of over-policing in poor communities, in Black communities, in Latino communities, and they don't account for over-arrests that are also made, right? They just, they, they don't account for this kind of racist or discriminatory pattern of policing that we have had since the kind of invention of policing in the United States. And those become a baseline of training data by people who may or may not even understand that history of bias and discrimination in our society. And they use that as a baseline of, um, of truth. And now future predictions are made on past um, discriminatory practices. Now, what's particularly concerning for me is that as we move um, rapidly toward deep machine learning and AI, that human beings have a hard time uh, uh, processing the amount of data that a computer can process, then new predictive um, patterns are being developed and um, decisions are being made that human beings can't even necessarily intervene upon because the amount of data that's being processed by the computer is something that a human brain can't process. And I think those are the kinds of things that we should really, to me, those, those, that's the future of AI as a human rights issue and as a civil rights issue that are, that are gonna be confronting us soon because we will lose our ability to intervene upon these complex decision-making systems that are made from so much data that um, human beings can't fix it. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was struck by your use of the term throughout the book, and you know, I'm hearing it now, of uh, this uh, decision-making processes or decision-making tools that we you know, kind of allowed to do our thinking for us, so to speak. And um, I, I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about this, this emphasis that we must have on critical thinking. And critical thinking is a term people use all the time, right? That, uh, especially in education spaces, but um, actually thinking about what that means um, in this world where we are increasingly relying on technology to make our decisions. Mm. Yes, I, I will say that, you know, I teach my students that critical thinking means being able to understand how power is operating in any particular situation or project. Mm. Um, because if they understand and can recognize and trace how power is being used for or against communities or individuals in any given scenario, then they are thinking critically about, um, you know, kind of the consequences or affordances of a, a, a technology, of 
a campaign, right, of, of a particular media, um, a film, a text, quite frankly. So critical thinking is who wins and who loses in a particular situation and why and um, what what are we what questions are we not asking what um, biases or past discriminations or past wrongs might we still be operating under and um, how might it be different those are to me the really important dimensions of thinking critically about something Uh, and I think that these Again, any any way that you can deepen your knowledge will help you to be a, a more critical thinker. The way that someone who's got a, a PhD in sociology or information studies like me, right? I mean, we might have spent years thinking about all of the various ways that power is operating um, in our fields or in, a, in society or around knowledge. Um, for example, one of the chapters in the book, I focus on the role of kind of gatekeeping people of color and women and poor people out of knowledge production. I mean, this has been a central issue for librarianship and, and academia for a long time. I find it interesting that at the moment in history where you have more voices of color, more previously kind of poor people who've become educated, who have access to creating knowledge, to publishing books, to having research, their research um, in play, we step away and like abandon that and say, oh, well, you know, we don't need universities or we don't need to be intellectuals or the vilification of academia. I mean, those are to me, again, really important things we should be thinking about it. What does it mean that when our institutions of knowledge making just start to become democratic and have fair representation? And I'll tell you, as someone who works in it, we're not quite there yet. Um, but right. just as it's happening, we we divest from academia and we divest from education. When we have a full generation of, of underrepresented teachers, this is when we now abandon public education. I mean, these mm. th- that's what critical thinking allows us to do is say, this is interesting. Why are we stepping away from the possibilities of using that knowledge and education to create a more fair and just society? Right. Instead, we're, we're stepping away from those very institutions that could help us the most. That is really powerful. And I, I would say, especially for our community of anti-bias educators, so folks who are dedicated to, you know, making sure they're addressing issues of social justice and inclusion and equity, that when we, when we talk about critical thinking in any arena that we need to be talking about power. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I will say, uh, just to wrap up then, for educators who will listen to this conversation, whether they're classroom teachers or librarians or media specialists um, or, you know, some other position in an educational space, uh, what do you want them to take away from your work? How, how do you hope it will inform their practice? Well, I hope that, um, I mean, I see myself as a partner with all of those people that you mentioned, and I hope that the the work that I do will be an asset to them. Um, Certainly, I think there are lots of exercises that um, all of those uh, kind of educators can do, like um, have your students do Google searches, have them look for 
um, news stories about the topics of the day, see what kinds of things they're finding, and then put them into alternate environments, send them to the library, and have them not just look in the library database, which again is another kind of constraining system, but have them walk the stacks have them go and interview people and talk to people, older people in their communities about those phenomena, have them engage in multiple ways of learning and knowing, and then thinking about, well, who benefits and who loses with some of the things that I've been able to find and who's in control of a particular narrative. And I think that level of kind of critical digital media literacy is is so important. I don't put the onus um, on educators and parents and students to figure all of this out. I do think that the the products that get put out into the public, whether it's a search engine or pharmaceuticals or cars, need to have regulation um, and and consumer safety um, needs to be at the forefront, including hate speech and disinformation and things that can provoke social harm. Those things need to be dealt with kind of in a regulatory framework. But I think on the ground, you know, where people are interacting with students, challenge students to think about the kinds of things they find on the internet, and then expose them to alternatives so that they know that the beginning and end of information seeking doesn't have to just be through the internet. I think that is the perfect way to wrap up. Thank you so, so much. You're welcome. Um, I think folks are going to find this incredibly useful and insightful and thought-provoking and, uh, and challenging. But we, we yes. need to, to do the work. Yeah. Awesome. Let's do it. We're all in this together. That was Safia Noble, an assistant professor at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communication. Find out more about her research in her book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Next, I talk with Heidi Byrick about how hateful actors have used the web to their advantage and what we can do to counter the spread of hate online. Did you know that Teaching Tolerance has other podcasts? We've got Teaching Hard History, which builds on our framework, Teaching Hard History, American Slavery. Listen as our host, history professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries, brings us the lessons we should have learned in school through the voices of leading scholars and educators. It's good advice for teachers and good information for everybody. We've also got Queer America, hosted by professors Lila Roof and John D'Amelio. Joined by scholars and educators, they take us on a journey that spans from Harlem to the frontier West, revealing stories of LGBTQ life that belong in our consciousness and in our classrooms. Find both podcasts at tolerance.org podcasts and use them to help you build a more robust and inclusive curriculum. Heidi, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about uh, a very important subject, something that um, educators in particular need to know. Um, First, will you start by just introducing yourself and uh, telling us a little about what you do? Well, thanks, Manita. It's really great to be here and talk with you and your audience. Uh, So my name is Heidi Byrick. I'm the director of the Intelligence Project here at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And that's basically the part of the law center that tracks hate groups and extremists and reports on them. That's that's our main job. So given what you've learned from your work in the world of hate, 
what does the public need to know about the ways hate proliferates and is cultivated online? Well, unfortunately, with all the benefits that the web and technology brought us, it also brought a terrible downside, which is this. Social media and forums have created an environment in which it's very easy for neo-Nazis, Klansmen, other racial extremists to interact in a way that just really wasn't possible before. If you think about in the 1990s, if you had these sort of ugly inclinations, the only way you were going to connect with somebody else who shared your views was by getting on a fax list or a mailing list or somehow getting in contact with someone in a hate group who could invite you to an event. In other words, it was really hard because chances were that your neighbors didn't share these ideas and, you know, how do you get connected to these people? But what happened with the rise of the web, in particular forums and social media, is that problem was essentially solved. You could go online, type something terrible into Google, something anti-Semitic, racist, whatever the case might be, and within seconds you're going to find fellow travelers. Nowadays you're going to find those fellow travelers on mainstream platforms like Facebook or Twitter, or you can find them on you know, bona fide hate sites like stormfront.org. And that's the problem with the web. It has this really dark side that allows people with really ugly ideas and plans to connect and build movements. You know, we, we see great movement building, for example, throughout the Middle East and the uprisings against authoritarian governments. But at the same time, neo-Nazis now have a tool to organize themselves. And that is the problem that we have with the online space. And uh, since we're talking about um, these hate groups and, you know, extremists, their ability to really grab more people and pull them in, uh, can you talk a little bit about young people's vulnerability to that? Well, this is the most scary thing, I think, about the web is the vulnerability of young people to being exposed to propaganda that they, they have no sense about it. They have no ability to judge it or get why it's wrong. They don't have the sort of level of digital liter literacy that's necessary. And one of the problems that you find online is not only do you get this one-to-one -one touch between individuals where they share propaganda, hate propaganda, but you also have problems with algorithms where when you start searching for um, something that may lead you to sort of a, a line of racist websites, there's nothing to veer you off that path. So it's really easy to get sucked in. And when you have fragile-minded people, young people, they can get lured in by older racists who start teaching them why they should hate, giving them a worldview that's toxic and frankly just wrong. Or the, the way that the algorithms themselves work on the mainstream platforms can basically suck you down a rabbit hole of hate. So I think that's a great segue into talking about Dylan Roof and how um, this very thing, like doing a search for black on white crime, sucked him in to, you know, like one racist white supremacist website after another. Can you talk more about that process of how he got, became radicalized, basically? Yeah, Dylan Roof is in many ways a very, very tragic situation, of course, because of the people he shot, but also the way a classic kid who was isolated, had some mental health issues, was very much fragile-minded, was essentially manipulated by the web. And what happened with Dylan Roof, because he told this story in his manifesto, we know what happened exactly, is he was watching the news during the Trayvon Martin 
situation, right, when Trayvon Martin was killed. And he was curious about what was going on there. So he gets on Google, he says he gets on Google, and he types on black on white crime. And what Google then does is instead of pointing him to legitimate statistics about crime, which would show that the idea that black on white crime is happening at some high level is, is a lie, basically, it doesn't exist, it's a fantasy. Instead of getting that, what Google did was pointed him to the hate sites that proliferate this myth. And it's one of the most powerful propaganda points on hate sites today. And it's this idea that white people need to arm themselves and protect themselves violently against black people because black people are basically carrying on an unreported secret war against whites, literally killing them in the streets. Of course, this is all ridiculous and not true. But what happened to Dylan is he typed that in. The next thing he knows, he's on the Council of Conservative website that has pages and pages of so-called black-on-white murders. They're not real, but they're presented that way. And then he bounces from there to other sites that share the same ideology, like American Renaissance. And eventually he makes his way to Stormfront.org, where he begins posting right? He continues this curiosity. He ends up on the neo-Nazi website Daily Stormer where he's posting. And what he's basically done is from that flawed initial search that pushed to the top of the Google results, right, on that first page, just hate sites, he has now made his way all the way through the movement, sucked in all this false data, wrong ideology, come to the position that he thinks that he needs to kill black people to protect white people from, from sort of scourge of violence that doesn't exist. And he's now become literally a member of the neo-Nazi movement because he's posting on all these websites. That's what happened to him, and it literally started with Google's algorithm. And um, I want to touch on the algorithm in just a second, but um, just for people who may not know, can you talk about the importance, or I would say uh, the stature of the Daily Stormer and Stormfront for those who don't know, you know, how big they are in the hate world? Yeah, I would say the Daily Stormer, which is a neo-Nazi website, and Stormfront, which is sort of a, a, it's just a forum, but it's an agglomeration of everybody from the Klan to neo-Nazis to people who describe themselves as white nationalists. It's more of a widespread racist and anti-Semitic community. Those are the two biggest places for the propagation of hate. And I say this um, because that's what the data shows. Stormfront, for example, has more than 330,000 registered users who are active on the site. And what's interesting about Stormfront is it very much grew as a backlash to Obama's election. Uh, in 2008, there were 150,000 uh, registered users on Stormfront. Wow. And the other thing that's interesting about Stormfront, it's the first hate site that was put up on the web. It came up in 1995, just a few months after the Oklahoma City bombing, and a former Klansman named Don Black runs this site, and he said, he predicted at the time, this is our way around the mainstream media, this is the way we connect, right? Which is exactly what's happened with the web and white supremacists. Daily Stormer, a neo-Nazi site that's run by a guy named Andrew Anglin, has more than 400,000 unique page views a month. 
And it's also a website uh, that we at the Southern Poverty Law Center have a particular interest in because we are suing the owner of the site, Andrew Anglin, for conducting a troll storm against um, a particular Jewish woman in Whitefish, Montana. And when I say troll storm, I mean he picked her out as an anti-racist activist and then a massive amount of harassment came down on her family, including phone calls, postcards, right up in your face. This isn't just about online activities. And we're suing the group and um, and this particular neo-Nazi to hold them accountable for that harassment. So this is another thing you have to understand about these websites. They don't just exist on the online world. They don't just radicalize the Dylan Roofs of the world. They cr create real harm for the rest of us out here, especially if you speak up against racism, you can become the target. Right. So we, we see these real world implications from what's happening online. So going back to Google's algorithm, I know because I work with you <laughs> that um, the SPLC has actually been in conversation quite a bit with Google about its algorithm. So can you talk a bit about what you've learned in terms of why this hateful content has risen to the top as opposed to something legitimate? Yes. Here's what happened to Google. Uh, when the site was originally conceived, um, PageRank, which is how you get to the top of the first page, and incidentally, PageRank is not because it's a page on the website. It's named after Larry Page, one of the Google founders. Did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really interesting. PageRank, for a long time, and, and initially, was determined basically by how much your academic article was cited by other academic articles. That was the original conception. So there was some sort of logic and authoritativeness to being ranked number one on, you know, the first time you search for something, or ranked number 10, or on the second page. It was actually about credibility. It was totally about credibility. Yeah. But then in 2009, uh, Google decided to start monetizing its content. And so what that means is they wanted to sell you they wanted to sell stuff to you through ads and then they take a cut from the ads, right? They make money. This is how they're profitable. So instead of giving you authoritative data, like giving Dylan Roof the FBI's statistics on crime, they started giving you more and more of what you want. This is a little bit like when you go on Amazon and you buy, in my case, some terrible hate book, right? Because I'm watching these people. My list of what I should buy next is a little scary because it's right. more hate material. Okay, that's one thing. It's a totally different thing when it's a generic search on an important topic. And so Google monetized this thing. That's how Dylan Roof ended up bouncing from one hate site to another and not to real data on crime. Mm. So, you know, a few years uh, ago, in, I think in uh, 2015, we went and visited with them and pointed this out to them, showed them that this problem existed. We made a video at one point that laid out all the problems with the algorithm using Dylan Roof as an example and saying, look, Google, you have got to push hate material off the front page. You cannot treat it as though it's as trustworthy and authoritative, and those are the words they use for what gets on the first page, mm. as, for example, crime statistics from the Department of Justice. Right. You have a terrible, terrible flaw here. You didn't handle the monetization of these algorithms in an appropriate manner, and you got to start fixing things now or we're going to have more Dylan Roofs. Yeah. So um, has anything come of those conversations with Google? 
Well, it's really interesting. The first time we visited with them at their headquarters in Mountain View, they basically told us there was nothing they can do about the algorithm. It was almost like they were describing a Jenga game, and if you removed one piece, everything oh, no. was going to cascade down. Right. I mean, literally, we had some of the top data scientists at Google in the room with us saying there's nothing we can do about this. We had, um, we had walked them down the path that Dylan Roof had gone down. But there was a moment in there that we switched to another subject and where I had this uh, PowerPoint and I said, you know, when you type Martin Luther King into this, mm. right, our great civil rights icon, not just for the U.S., for the world, the first hit you get and most of the hits on the first page are hate sites. In fact, the page that was the top link at the time was martinlutherking.org which is owned by Stormfront, the hate site. Wow. So dot .org. Wow. And a dot .org, right? Because yes. as we all know, a dot .org doesn't necessarily mean that something is legitimate, even mm. though we all tend to think that. Right. So I put that up on the screen, and I was, I was saying to them, you're teaching the world. I mean, kids all around the world who are looking into civil rights and who are Googling Martin Luther King, um, this is what they're getting. This hmm. is what you are teaching the billions of users of your site. And they continue to, and you know, they looked a little horrified, but they continued to insist that their system was perfect and they couldn't make any changes. But about two, three weeks later, someone here at the Southern Poverty Law Center, I don't think it was me, Googled this, and all of a sudden, mm -hmm. Stormfront's Martin Luther King site had gone off the front page, including some other hate sites. Mm -hmm. So apparently it wasn't quite as complex as, it, as they laid it out. And frankly, since the time that we criticized them and, and others did it, have done so as well, they have been continually changing the algorithm to actually make it more trustworthy, to make the things that end up on the first page more reliable and correct. There's still a lot of problems with the system, but I feel like it's a, it's a seminal moment for them to admit that the monetizing road they'd gone down had had some really huge flaws and that they had to take responsibility for what this algorithm spits out and not have it spitting out hate sites for Martin Luther King or for, you know, anything else. Right. And I think you make such an important point that what's coming up through their search engine is helping to shape people's knowledge gathering. So a young person who may not know better, if they see martinlutherking.org, and if you can talk some about, you know, the content that was on the site, it wasn't necessarily obviously hateful, right? It was kind of subtle. Can you talk about that? Yeah, no, the, the information was subtle. In fact, the, the creepiest part of that site, actually, was at the top, it said something like, hey, students, take a quiz on Martin Luther mm. King Jr. And then you click on that link, and what it is is all this negative propaganda about him. But it sounds authoritative. It sounds like somebody legitimate could have written this. So they're trying to suck you in, right? They're trying to suck you in into a false narrative about Martin Luther King. And I actually think the bigger issue here is this. There are so many billions of people now who learn everything from Google all over the world. Yes. The Google has essentially become our library, yes. the world's library. Mm -hmm. And so this isn't, it can't just be treated as an amoral enterprise to make money. And, and you can't just lie and say you're somehow presenting information in some sort of a technical, non-moral way. You have a moral responsibility, for, and meaning Google does, or anybody else who runs these algorithms, to present valid information. Because you're going to set people down the road of wrong thinking otherwise. You're going to essentially disinform them. You know, we named our video the uh, miseducation of Dylan Roof. 
you're not just miseducating Dylan Roof. You're miseducating billions if you do this. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that. You cannot proclaim to be the library of the world and not take the responsibility that the librarian has to make sure the books that you're highlighting are legit. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you for that. I don't know if you know the name uh, Safia Noble. She came out with a book in January called Algorithms of Oppression. And she's talking about this very thing, uh, except where it concerns Google searches of, say, black girls and what comes up. And it's the same thing. We, Google has basically become synonymous with internet search. And so there's a responsibility there. And, and I think that's something for our listeners, too, that we want them to be aware of when they're teaching young people that, you know, what you see isn't necessarily... 100% authoritative or, or credible. We need to know how these algorithms work. There is no question that educators actually have to school up on this particular issue. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact of the matter is that Google and most of these places tend to reflect back to us the horrific biases we already have in society. Mm -hmm. When you crowdsource page ranks or you crowdsource photos or you crowdsource anything, you're going to get just what's deep-seated in our society, racism, white supremacy, bigotry. Uh, there have been situations where photographs of uh, African-American people have been interpreted as animals mm -hmm. because the people that they're talking to have biases. And so, you know, you can't really teach about the online world without teaching about how it reflects back to us in many ways everything that's wrong with us. I mean, and there are in some ways opportunities there, right, to highlight how deep biases are, that they can almost just be reflected as people are typing stuff into an algorithm. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it, that reminds me. So, you know, when you're t typing keywords in and you get those auto oh gosh they're awful the autofill feature on oh. google has been a cesspool and they've been working on it but i mean for a while there if you typed in like say you were going to ask a question about muslims so you type in muslim and then it would say like all muslims are terrorists right um it had the same kinds of problems with every single population minority population mm -hmm. and i mean forget it it's not just about minorities it's also about women terrible yes. misogynistic yes. Uh, material so you have to be careful for all that and students today have to know how to navigate this right teachers have to help them understand how flawed this stuff is mm -hmm. so you know we've been talking a lot about uh you know so when dylan roof went into his search for black on white crime he already had you know, a, a very loaded premise of what that was going to mean and what he was going to find, basically. Um, and I think the Martin Luther King example is a good one. But can you talk about, you know, are there other seemingly harmless or benign search terms that actually do lead to hateful sites that folks might want to think about or just as good examples? Well, I think probably the most problematic here is actually the autofill feature. Mm. Because what happens is, even if you have like a generic interest in something, say for perhaps you're interested in Judaism, right? It could be anything. The autofill actually tells you what question you want answered. Mm, right. So it suggests to you in that way what material you should be looking at. And I think that that is far more dangerous actually than Dylan Roof talking about typing in black on white crime. If you type in black and it tells you, are blacks more violent than whites? 
that's really problematic mm-hmm. because you, you know Google's telling you what you should be looking for. Right, something and that you probably weren't even thinking about. I was like, oh, right. well, are they? And the auto, I should look at that. Exactly, and the autofill is based on all those racial biases and bigotry and everything that we have in our society. So it's not something we addressed in our video, but in many ways it's more important. And you know, yeah. I'm glad they've started cleaning it up, but they've got work to do. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything we can do to counter the hate we see online? Yes. Uh, well, there's there's a few things that we can do. One, we need to get media. We need to get literate about the online space, mm-hmm. right? So that's like a basic responsibility for everybody. And I think kids today just need to be taught differently. They have to be really suspicious and understand flags in the online environment and so on. But but the other thing that all people can do is tell the Facebooks and the Googles of the world, I don't want to see this. You need to change this. I mean, I think too often, you know, people in their busy lives don't realize that when they do that, it's, it's kind of like writing a letter to your congressman, right? Mm-hmm. But in this case, writing it to the tech companies or sending them an email saying, I'm opposed to this. I don't want to see your little autofill fill things out like this. I don't want to see your facial recognition be racist. I don't want to see Google Maps being um, manipulated by white supremacists to say something racist about the White House. I'm thinking about when the yes. Obamas were there. Right. In mm-hmm. other words, I, you people in Silicon Valley need to learn more about civil rights, white supremacy, the history of colonialism, because we're not just talking about the United States, right? We're talking about imbalances of power. You need to learn about genocide. You know, Facebook is one of the reasons that we had the Rohingya genocide. It was orchestrated off Facebook. So these are problematic things across the world that lead to mass spasms of racial and other types of violence between in-groups and out-groups. And we, kind of the people, need to let these people know that we're not going to have it. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think that speaks to, once again, you know, Google has, over the years, contested that, oh, well, we can't change our algorithm. And then we've seen what happens when they get public pressure about it. They actually do make tweaks, so we know that they can be affected. Look, I mean, the fact of the matter is our original strategy in dealing with the tech companies was to approach them quietly behind the scenes to sort of say, hey, you have these problems, you might want to work on them. And it was a completely ineffective strategy. Yeah. It was only by going public, and you know, this isn't just about the Southern Poverty Law Center, allies of ours like the Anti-Defamation League, groups like Data and Society, there's a lot of folks who care about this, also have helped on this front, but it's taken the public pressure for them to take this stuff seriously. So frankly, from my position, the more the better. And I think educators can play a very powerful role here because you know what your kids are seeing, you know how they're being impacted. And you know, Google may feel maybe it doesn't have such a moral responsibility to to the adult population, but it has to, to those kids. Yeah, yeah. And so for uh, educators, you mentioned earlier that, you know, educators need to kind of study up on all of this stuff, too. Um, What are some particular things you think they need to be doing or learning so that they can better teach their kids to navigate online, the online world, basically? Well, I think you need to have sort of a rudimentary understanding of where the most ugly material comes from on the web. Those are um, forums like 4chan and 8chan and places like Reddit, although Reddit has been trying to clean itself up. I mean, really, the online space is not as big as you would think. Most people are on Facebook, Twitter, the sites I just mentioned. 
um, Instagram, okay. you know, some places like that. So you need to know what those forums are about, how they function, and how they've been connected to spreading bias. I think that's a baseline, and there have been some good books like the one you mentioned recently that dive dive into that. You need to know that. You need to know a little bit about what hate speech looks like online, how it functions, and at least the basics of the flaws in algorithms. This isn't something that takes like massive amounts of time to figure out, and there are a ton of resources on it, including from us here at the Southern Poverty Law Center. So that, I think, is sort of the baseline. You need to know about the flaws so that you can convey them um, to your students. And, and each site is a little different. You know, in Facebook, it's about the algorithm and the news feed mm -hmm. uh, that's problematic, or about the Messenger app. That's how, actually, the uh, Rohingya situation in Myanmar was manipulated. Wow. Um, and then, you know, when it's Twitter, it's actually about just letting really vile people continue to have public accounts. Mm -hmm. And just and spew it, and spew and spew. And, yeah. a, and it's a place of harassment, right? right? Where you've had these terrible harassment of um, journalists and all, and all kinds of stuff. And then knowing about places like 4chan and 8chan is to understand that these are unregulated areas of the Internet where kids end up getting radicalized. You can't control them. They're not going to have a hate speech policy. They don't have terms of service. That's a place that if a kid gets there, it's the Wild West, and they're going to be exposed to a lot of bad stuff, including criminal stuff. It's not just about hate mm, speech. Right. Um, so you need to know about those things. And I'll just add one other thing that I am no expert on but is important. Um, the Charlottesville rally in 2017, right, that led to Heather Heyer's death, that was organized on a gaming app called Discord. And there are some gaming apps, including Discord and Steam, where children are very active. Yeah. And white supremacists are very knowledgeable about the fact that children are active there. So both, I guess in this case, parents and teachers need to be aware of what their kids are doing in those gaming apps because um, bad people are trying to take advantage of them in that space. Thank you for adding that about gaming. And that's something we definitely want to get into in another episode because that's so... Um relevant right now as you're saying you know kids are really into these gaming apps and can be sucked into these uh, really hateful worlds absolutely and in the gaming apps someone can go at them one-on-one -on -one. they mm. can speak to them and that like that makes it even more intense than a forum right where you might be writing back and forth with people right. that's good i'm glad you're going to address it it's important yeah. thank you well, uh, once again, will you tell us who you are and what you do for the Southern Poverty Law Center? Sure. So I'm Heidi Byrick. I run the uh, SPLC's Intelligence Project, which is the part of the Southern Poverty Law Center that monitors hate groups and extremists. Thank you, Heidi. Thanks for having me. That was Heidi Byrick, Director of the Intelligence Project for the Southern Poverty Law Center. You can learn more about the Intelligence Project at splcenter.org. That's S-P-L-C-E-N-T-E-R dot org. Thanks for tuning in to The Mind Online, a podcast of Teaching Tolerance, which is a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm your host, Monita Bell, Senior Editor for Teaching Tolerance. This podcast was inspired by Teaching Tolerance's digital literacy framework, which offers seven key areas in which students need support developing digital and civic literacy skills and features lessons for kindergarten through 12th grade classrooms. Each lesson is designed in a way that can be used by educators with little to no technology in their classrooms. The digital literacy framework and all its related resources, including a series of student-friendly videos and a professional development webinar, can be found online at tolerance.org slash diglit. 
that's tolerance.org slash D-I-G-L-I-T. This episode of The Mind Online was produced by Jasmine Lopez. Production was supervised by Kate Schuster, and we'd like to give special thanks to our guests, Sophia Noble and Heidi Byrick, and to Teaching Tolerance senior writer Corey Collins. Like what you heard? Then share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And remember to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen.